Now, one of my absolute favorite things in the world is memes, or are memes. I'm not, I couldn't figure out how that sentence should be grammatically worded. Um, but if you don't know what a meme is, it's a picture or a statement. Some, usually it's really funny. It gets shared on the internet. It makes a point oftentimes. And one of the characteristic traits of memes, though, is they get subtly changed as they get shared. People change the words or add a different caption to a picture. It's just kind of a, a weird, fun little part of the internet culture that exists now. And I just really, really get a kick out of them. I don't know why. I just do. Um, it just tickles that special place in my funny bone that few things can. Um, and so a while back, though, I stumbled across an Instagram account called The Bible is Funny. And all they do are Christian-based, um, but mostly Bible-centric memes. Um, the ones they did for a long time are my favorite. They don't do them as much anymore, but they would list at the very top a statement and then a Bible verse that makes that statement funny. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. Okay, first up it says, when I attempt to parallel park, everyone who sees me mocks me, Psalm 22, 7, right? Um, that one hit home for me because when I got my license, I tried to parallel park one time since I was 16. It was the day after I got my license, I was going to the gym with, I had a friend in my car, and I tried to parallel park on Main Street in Fairfield, Illinois. I knew immediately that it was, I'd started horribly wrong, and I thought, nope, never doing that again. And I have circled many a block waiting for a parking space to open up. Um, another one says, when you get the music from Encanto out of your head, or when you can't get the music from Encanto out of your head, if you've got little kids and you've seen the movie Encanto, them songs, they burrow into your brain and they don't get out. And so the verse, it says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. <laughs> Second Corinthians 12, 8. It says, me, accidentally passes gas. Yoga instructor, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. <laughs> Matthew 6, 9. Um, a prayer for strength as I drive by Krispy Kreme. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let me eat their, or their delicacies. <laughs> Psalm 141, 33-4. Um, and then this one says, When you turn 30, the Lord shall smite thee in the knees. Deuteronomy 28, uh, I love those. Okay, because I love the Bible and I love memes. And boy, you, that's an ep epic little bit of crossover that really works well, has a special place in my heart. Now, but just as there are... Christians who like to make memes using the Bible and make um, these funny things that help us to enjoy Scripture and kind of enjoy our faith in various ways. There are also out there many who would use the Bible to make memes kind of against our faith or even against the Bible itself. Um, and so there's, um, again, I got a lot of these from that book, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball, um, because he uses kind of these memes that are, I mean, because they're all over the internet. And what you're going to find unpleasant about some of these that I'm about to show you is that a lot of times all they do is just quote the Bible, and it leaves it in this very unpleasant and shocking way, and that's kind of uh, the point that they're trying to make. Um, here's one. It says, unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible. Cats are mentioned zero times. That's all you need to know about the Bible, because unicorns aren't real. Cats are very real. They're everywhere. So if the Bible was going to be real, it would probably talk about real animals more than imaginary animals. Um, second one says, I believe in biblical marriage. And then it gives some examples of marriages in the Bible. Marriage between a man and multiple wives, 
between a man and his concubines, a man and his brother's wife, a man and the woman he rapes, and a man and the women he captures at war. And there's verses for all of them. Oh, it just makes you uncomfortable to look at it. God says it's okay to buy slaves. In Leviticus, it says you may purchase male and female slaves. But God hates shrimp. In Leviticus 11, it says, These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters, whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters, in the seas and in the rivers, them ye shall eat. And all that have not fins and scales in the seas, they shall be an abomination to you. Which somebody then took those two things and put them together. God could have banned slavery or shellfish. He chose shellfish. Like, like why, why? And I understand a lot of people come and they see these and they're like, oh, this is heart-wrenching. It's painful. And then one, it's just, again, it just quotes the passage. And it, it hurts so much when you, again, look at it originally. It says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Psalm 137.9. And then the little bit of commentary says, great God you have. And they're so painful because, again, a lot of times they're just putting Scripture out there for us to look at and come face-to-face with. And the, and the obvious answer is, like, this stuff's in your Bible, and most of you don't even know it. That's kind of the point they're making. And a lot of Christians encounter these things and go, that's in the Bible? Like, what about love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? I like that stuff, but this kind of, ooh, I didn't know that was in there. And they're trying to make a very solid point. But here's the, the issue, though. Both of those memes, the sets of memes that I showed you, both the ones that are just funny, you know, Bible verses connected to situations, and the ones that are actually trying to dismantle the Bible, they are both illustrations of one of the most common mistakes that people make when they approach Scripture. Christians and non-Christians alike, we are all very guilty of this as Christians. It's very hard not to do this, given the way the Bible is formatted for us, okay? Because in our modern Bibles, we have chapters and little verse numbers, right? The chapters are the bigger numbers, and then the little tiny ones that you can almost not see. Those weren't originally there. That was put in by somebody a few, several hundred years ago to kind of just help us be able to navigate the Bible more specifically and point ourselves to specific spots in the Bible, right? But what we like to do, and it's again, it's a, it's a mistake that is something we got to be aware of every time we open Scripture, every time we want to talk about Scripture or reference Scripture, um, because the mistake we tend to make is we tend to cherry-pick the Bible verses that we like. Because it's broken up into these individual verses that are a sentence or two sentences long, you can take that little sentence, pull it out of Scripture, put it on a coffee mug, put it on a funny picture, make a meme out of it, and be like, look at this. And you can be like, the Bible is beautiful, it's great. Or you can be like, the Bible is stupid and ridiculous, and who would ever believe this nonsense? And cherry picking comes from the idea of actually picking cherries. Um, I know, I'm sure many of you have maybe not picked cherries, or anything, but you've done what, blackberries? You guys have done that, right? Um, there's, you know, orchards you can go and pick apples, right? And it's the idea where you walk up to the plant, and you pick the good ones that you like, the ones that look the best, and you leave the rest, right? Well, we tend to do the same with the Bible, we walk up to it, ooh, I like that one, that one sounds good. I'm going to take that out, and I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to read it. Maybe we even memorize it. Oftentimes, script, we talk about memorizing Bible verses versus Bible passages, larger chunks, right? It's just easy to do that, They're, the way it's divided up, right? And so um, it's easy to grab something, though, a verse from the Bible, and 
set it up to support what you believe, to support your viewpoint, to illustrate something that you want to illustrate to the world. Um, and again, we can't even really fight this problem um, or deny that this is a problem because we, we all do it. I mean, I would bet that almost not every American Christian, but a lot of American Christians could probably tell you one Bible verse and where it comes from. But most American Christians would admit, I haven't read all of the Bible. In fact, probably a couple of those verses, you're like, God said don't eat shrimp. Like, some of you, you wait for that like red lobster, all-you-can-eat shrimp thing. Like, you see that in the a commercial, and you're like, it's time. Like, you're like, yes. Right? And you're like, is that, where's that verse? I didn't know about that verse. Like, and so, it's, like, there's, we, we know parts of it, but we don't know the whole of it. And so, we're all kind of a little bit a part of this problem. Um, and so, what's unfortunate, though, is some of the biggest problems come from cherry-picking Bible verses. It's where the prosperity gospel nonsense comes from. The idea that um, if you just have enough faith, God will bless you, make you healthy, make you rich, he'll give you everything you ever wanted in life, if you just believe hard enough. You cannot believe that if you look at the whole story of Scripture. I had one pastor, or preacher, uh, professor excuse me, in college who said, it's the idea that if you believe in Jesus hard enough, you'll never have to be like Jesus, who suffered and died on a cross. You can't pick up and read verses like um, where Jesus says, tells his followers, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to, you know, walk in my world, uh, you just can't come to the understanding of the pri- pri- prosperity gospel. Boy, p words are killing me today. The prosperity gospel. If you're looking at the whole scripture, it comes from picking out the verses that support your viewpoint. Um, it's how many preachers now and and church uh, brands will kind of make the Bible appear like it's just a self help book that kind of just encourages you to go and achieve your dreams. You see all kinds of stuff like this. You know, God's got your back. He's here to make you succeed. You just take that leap of faith. You step out of the boat like Peter stepped out of the boat. And whatever you're trying to do, God will make you successful. That is also not the story of Scripture. But you can make it look that way when you take a few verses and you add a little bit of commentary behind it. It can go either way. You can make these nice-sounding verses um, support your version of Christianity. Or you can shock people with the ridiculous and terrifying-sounding things that are in the pages of Scripture. So cherry-picking Bible verses is a dangerous game. It is a mistake. And so if you want to know how not to read the Bible, don't cherry-pick Bible verses. And so kind of the action step I want to give you today is this. Never read a Bible verse. Now, I am not saying don't read any Bible verses. I'm saying never read a Bible verse. Always read more than one verse. Don't just take the verse at its, uh, at its own. You know, If you've got a coffee cup with a verse on it, that's all good and well and fine. But realize that every single verse in the Bible is a part of a bigger story that starts in Genesis and goes all the way through to Revelation. Do not read verses in isolation and move on and think, I get it. Because that is a dangerous game to play. And so many distortions of our faith come from that. And even some of the weapons against our faith come from making that terrible mistake. Every verse is written in a specific context to a specific group of people who lived in a particular place at a particular time. We can't just pull it out and think, 
I understand this. It was written 2,000 years ago, but this automatically applies to my life here and now. you got to understand where it falls in the larger bit of Scripture. Um, a good way to think about this is um, telling people maybe in another country where you live. Okay? Uh, when I got the chance to go to uh, Italy and Greece in college for, with a class, um, we were constantly, you know, this very obvious tourist group of students. All got our backpacks on. In fact, the group we went with gave everybody a backpack. So we were all wearing matching backpacks with our little digital cameras, you know, because we didn't have smartphones then. I mean, we looked so touristy walking around the joint. And so people would always be like, where are you from? And we would say, Illinois. And almost every time, do you know what they said? Oh, yeah, you're from Chicago. No, no, I cannot. And it was funny, like most of us, we were like, I don't even know how to correct you, but I feel like I need to stop. Like, I can't be okay with you thinking I'm from Chicago. Like, we need to, like, add some correction here. Um, but, it, but it is, that's all they knew. They didn't have enough understanding. Illinois to them, all it meant was Chicago. And so when you take a Bible verse, if you don't understand what's going on, that, I mean, there's mistakes that are very easily made. Um, so think of Scripture like you giving somebody your address. If you give somebody a piece of your address, they are very likely to not understand. I mean, this town, there is only one town in the nation that we live in named Loami. It's a very unique name, right? And so anytime I'm gone and somebody says, where are you from? Even if I'm in Springfield half the time, you know, sometimes you check out and like, can I get your zip code? Okay, or where are you from? I go, 62661. Loami, where's that? It's like eight minutes away from where you're standing, man. Like, it's not like it's far, you know? And you're like, I don't, and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's, I, it's not far away. Like, people, nobody knows where Loami is, unfortunately. Um, until, like, randomly I'll be in another state. I'm like, where are you from? Loami. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Why? Like, how does, how does that work where people eight minutes away have never heard of it, but then I can be like three states over and like, yeah, been there, totally. I can, yeah, you know the little, where the, you know, the post office is next to the bank? I'm like, yeah, like, and they can tell you stuff. It's so weird. Um, but anyway, so think about somebody asking me where I live and they have no idea. I can pull up on my phone a map of Loami. I'm like, this is what our town looks like. And the, this is the layout of the roads. And they be like, that means nothing to me. So what do you got to do? You zoom out a little bit. Like, oh, it's in Sangamon County. Okay, I get that. Okay, where's that? Zoom out. It's in Illinois. Okay, got it. Zoom out more. Oh, there's, you're in the U.S. Totally. It, you got to get the bigger picture by zooming out a little bit. It helps to understand more of what's going on. Think the same way with a Bible verse. Reading it on its own, it can sound nice, and you can get a little bit of information, but to get the real picture of what it's actually saying, it helps to zoom out and say, okay, what's going on in the paragraph? where this verse is written, or what's going on in the chapter where this verse is written, or what's going on in the book of the Bible where we find this verse, and then even where does this book fall in the story of Scripture? Because again, the Bible we learned a couple weeks ago, the Bible tells one story from beginning to end. It tells one cohesive story, and it all is leading up to and pointing to and building to Jesus. And so where does this verse fall in this grand story of Scripture? Uh, so what I want to do is, there's a lot of angles you could come at this from. Like from this point, you could go a couple different directions in what we're going to talk about. But what I just want to do for the last little bit of our time is I just kind of want to zoom out on Scripture, and I just want us to understand the, the story 
the, the whole story of Scripture. And so what I'm going to do is, I, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at this graphic, if you were here, showing how a promise that God makes to Abraham in the book of Genesis serves as the backbone of Scripture. Okay, that is true. This promise that God makes to Abraham saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going I'm to turn your descendants into this huge nation. I'm going to bless them with a piece of real estate to live their lives and be a nation. And then I'm going to, through that group of people, through your family tree, through that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world, that blessing being Jesus. Now, this is true, but in order for us to really get a grasp on the story of Scripture, I need to chop this up into a few more parts. So, you can call them parts, movements, whatever you want to call it. I called them parts because I can spell it. Part one, God creates and dwells with his people. That's where the story starts. Uh, we've talked about this a lot kind of in the last year, year and a half or so, about the idea that the universe, when God created it, it was created to be a temple, a place where God could enter in and we could be with him. Um, as with, like, think of, like, ancient temples. It was the place where people went to have an encounter with their deity. Um, the temple that was built um, in Scripture, there was kind of this ring system where as you entered in each possible room, you would get closer and closer to the presence of God. And in the middle, there was this place called the Holy of Holies, and it was considered the place where heaven and earth overlapped. That was a representation of the universe, and this center place where heaven and earth overlapped was this Garden of Eden where God met with Adam and Eve. And so God creates, and he dwells with his people in this beautiful relationship. But unfortunately, that is only the first two chapters of Scripture. Part two is humanity rebels and there are consequences. Because we choose to not obey God, we choose to not live the way he wants us to live, to not follow his rules, his commands, to live for the purpose for which he made us, but instead, I want to do my own thing, I'm going to satisfy my own desires, I'm going to just follow my own pursuits, I'll be my own God, and we disobey God. That's called sinfulness. And God, because we are impure with sin, we cannot be in his presence the way that Adam and Eve were in Eden. And so humanity is cast out from God. And this is illustrated through Genesis uh, chapter 3 through Genesis chapter 11, where humanity can no longer be in close relationship with God. And there's plenty of painful consequences along the way. Then we get to part 3, where God initiates his plan of redemption. Okay, God wants to get us back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He wants us to be able to be in his presence. He wants us to be clean and free of sin. And so God starts this centuries-long plan of salvation. In Genesis chapter 12, when he makes this promise to Abraham, where Abraham, I'm going to take your, your descendants, even though at the time Abraham didn't have kids and was like 80 years old. He's like, I'm going to take your descendants and I'm going to make your family tree so big, you're going to be able to be your own nation. And then I'm going to give them a place to live their lives and to give them a set of rules to be a special kind of nation. And then through those people, I'm going to bless the whole world. Not just be a blessing to you, I'm going to bless all the nations through your people's one nation. And so that goes from Genesis chapter 12 through 36. As Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named... Jacob, this is Bible Bowl, you didn't know it, but it is. Okay, but then here's the fun fact that a lot of us miss, okay? God changed Jacob's name. God loves changing people's names from, so that they have kind of a before God grabbed me and an after God grabbed me 
part of the story, right? He did it with Abraham. His name was Abram, and then he made him Abraham. So what did he do? Does anybody know what he changed Jacob's name to? Israel. That's why we call it the nation of Israel, because it's Israel's descendants. Okay, good. Get a gold star, those of you that knew that. Um, And then part three, God grows Abraham's descendants into the nation. He fulfills that first part of the promise. We see this in Genesis chapter 37 through the end of the first five books of the Bible. Jacob, or Israel, has 12 sons. And through a long series of events, God takes those sons and that family and he moves them to Egypt. And as they kind of are blessed by God and their numbers grow, the Egyptians are like, whoa, there's almost more of them right now in this area than there are us. Uh, We don't want them taken over. And so the Egyptians made slaves out of Israel's people. And even though they did their best to try to limit their population growth, they couldn't. And they just kept growing and growing and growing. And after several hundred years of this growth and them being in slavery, God raises up a man named Moses to lead a freedom movement and lead them out of slavery, out of Egypt, to a place where they would be their own people. So for the first time since they've had these huge numbers, they are free and they are their own independent people. And then through the rest of the um, first five books of the Bible, God is giving them this law code so that they would be a special type of nation. He's like, there's all these nations out there and they're all a mess. It's all full of sin and all of you know, humanity. We always do the wrong thing. We just kind of do. He says, so I'm going to give you this law code so that you will look different, act different, be different than all of the other nations so that you would be a nation devoted to me. And then in part five, God gives this nation a land to call home. And this takes us through the rest of the Old Testament. Um, but that's a little bit of a simplification. So I kind of cheated. Um, and, and there's three parts to part five. So there's a far, part five A, a part five B, and a part five C, just to help us again understand the story. Part five A is when God gives them the land. That's the book of Joseph, Joshua. excuse me. And so they go into the promised land. God says, There's people already living there. I want you to either destroy or drive out all the people that are already living there because they're so evil. I don't want anybody else in this land to rub off on you and, you know, be bad influences to you. And so Israel goes in and they take full control of the land, but they don't listen to God and they don't drive everybody out and they don't destroy all those other people. So they are still being influenced according to the wrong directions. And so in part 5b, Israel repeatedly fails to be faithful. This is the bulk of the Old Testament, and it is a painful, painful read um, because during their time when they are the independent nation of Israel and they have this piece of land where they, this is the land of Israel, and this is where we live, they they amassed huge power at times, they had a great kingdom at at certain points, and they would have these moments, these shining examples of, of greatness and people that loved God as their leader, and then the, the roller coaster, as it climbs that, you know, that hill, it comes crashing down almost faster uh, than it went up. And they had horrible failures. The people did awful things. They turned away from God. They worshipped a bunch of other false gods. And they had a bunch of evil rulers who did horrible things. And so God warns them over and over again, if you guys can't keep it together, I'm going to take away some of the things that I've given you. And in part 5c, we find Israel's exile and return. And this takes us from Ezra through Malachi. And because of their evil, evil, God starts to take away the things he'd given them. They were an independent nation. They had freedom. 
God lets a big nation come in, a couple big nations come in and take over and flatten them, and they lose their independence, and they don't get that back through the entire rest of the scriptures. They aren't an independent nation anymore. They're like a, a territory then for the rest of scripture that's under the control of bigger nations. And so they, they, um, they lose their nation. Uh, God takes their land from them. They come in and they get their cities flattened, and a lot of them get taken to be slaves again. They lose that, too. They get it's like God is undoing what he's done, saying, come on, I told you that if you followed me, you would enjoy these blessings, but if you didn't, I would start to take some of them back. And so the things God gives them, God takes away. But all the while this is falling apart, um, God is making promises to them through prophets, saying, don't worry, this isn't the end. God hasn't totally given up on you. This is a, a little season of punishment to set Israel straight. And at some point in time, you will be allowed to go back in and rebuild and live in your homelands again. But they would never get back to the heights of glory uh, that they existed in before this. And so for 70 years, they were out of the land that God had given them. And so then once the Old Testament's over, we get 400 years of nothing, and we get to the New Testament, part 6, where Jesus comes to bless humanity. This is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Four different accounts of Jesus' life. So centuries and centuries after God made this promise to Abraham, he'd given him a land, or he'd given them a nation, made him a nation, given him a land, kind of rolled back some of that stuff and re-given it back. Now God fulfills this final portion by sending Jesus to be born into the family of Abraham, an Israelite Jewish male who would bless not just those people, but the entire world. Because Jesus came to deal with that problem of sin that had plagued humanity from the very beginning. And so Jesus did that in a way that nobody else could. He lived a perfect life, the kind of life every human being had failed to live. Um, he took the punishment that we deserve, meaning he had no guilt. He did not deserve to die. So when he died, he took our punishment. He died in our place. He had no criminal record to suffer for. He took my criminal record, your criminal record, and he died for it. And then he rose from the grave, proving that he was who he said he was. He proved uh, that, uh, or he modeled what our future would be like when we put our faith in him, life after death, that death would no longer be able to hold us. And so when he did that, again, he made it possible for us to have the original main problem of us to be fixed, our sinfulness. And salvation, again, it wasn't just for the descendants of Abraham. It was for all nations. And we immediately see that taken to effect in part seven, the mission to all nations. This is in, uh, starts in Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, when men and women go out and just start telling the whole world about Jesus. And what's really cool about this, and maybe you've asked, you ask yourself, okay, why did God, why did there have to be like parts, like four, five, like why couldn't God skip all that mess and just like send Jesus earlier on and fix it all? Well, what's so interesting is about the, the time period when Jesus came, it was the first time when pretty much the entire world ex experienced peace. It was the only, first time when the entire world had a common language. You could speak an old form of Greek at that point in time, and almost anybody anywhere would be able to uh, understand you. And it was the first time th they had roads, like real roads, like really good roads. Roads so good that some of them are still there, and doing well, and, I mean, 
you've seen how our roads are sometimes, right? Like, it's like, I don't know what those Romans had going for them, but those guys built some roads. They were good at that. And so um, it was the first time when this message, this saving message of Jesus could go out to all the nations. And so men and women, they went everywhere. And the, it went beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, which was so much of the world then. It became multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational. And these little groups of Jesus followers called churches were popping up all over the world. And this is the bulk of the New Testament, um, from Acts to Revelation chapter 20. And then, finally, part eight, redemption completed. We get a glimpse at the very last of the Bible, showing us what the end of, t- of all things will be like. And it's when God recreates the universe. He restores, remakes everything, a new heavens, new earth, it says. And he makes the universe so that uh, the, the promises of our faith would be fulfilled. And we would get to, once again, all humanity that has put their faith in Jesus would get to live in an Eden-like place where heaven and earth come into contact and we live with Jesus for all time in a world without pain and suffering and death, feeling the internal satisfaction of a people who are living in light of a God who always loves them. So that was my short overview of the Bible. And you might be thinking, your version of short, Anthony, and my definition is different. And that's okay, okay? Maybe you couldn't, like, quote all that back to me. That's fine. Let me ask you this, though. Did you at least see that there was a story? Give me some head nods. If you, you at least saw that there's a progression through the pages of Scripture. It tells one story from beginning to end. Okay, hang, just get, if that's all I got to you, that's great. That's fine, okay? Now, Every, remember, every verse you will ever read out of the Bible falls somewhere in that story. No verse is an isolated little thing to be taken all on its own. Every verse in Scripture falls somewhere, fits somewhere in the story. And so we've got to remember that because when you take one on its own, even if it sounds good, there's a little bit of danger in that. Even if it's just something you want to put on a coffee cup or you know, have a, a little framed thing put up on your wall next to the live, laugh, love. It, it, it still can be a little bit dangerous when you do that. Because, again, every verse is a part of this bigger story. And when you take it out and use it on its own, it's a recipe for trouble. Now, um, some of you are probably thinking, are you going to talk about those dangerous, scary things you read at the beginning? I would like an explanation to some of that. Um, I don't have time to do all of it, but let me pick one. One that I think is probably one of the scarier parts. Happy is he who sees his infants and dashes them against the rocks. Like, I remember being a young Christian and coming across that and being like, what in the world is that? Because in modern translation, it says, blessed is the one. Like, blessed, like, good for you, God loves you. And it's like, I don't know what that means. I'm just going to skip it and forget it ever existed and hope the next, uh, hope that, you know, Psalm 138 is a little happier. Like, that's kind of how, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, And if you've never heard anything like that, again, it sounds really scary. And again, when someone puts the comment on there, good God you have, makes it sound like God's the one who is saying, boy, nothing like killing some babies. And you're like, that's not, that doesn't seem to fit with what I know about the Bible. Okay, well, remember, it's all a part of the story. Well, Psalm 137, we'll just start reading it, and you'll start seeing where the story is. It says, by the waters of Babylon. Babylon was one of those nations that God allowed to beat Israel and take them into exile. And so this is written by somebody who has just had their whole life destroyed. 
The Babylonian army came in, flattened the cities of Israel, flattened its capital city, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, which was the representation that we have God here, took that out. They felt like everything I've ever loved is, is gone. The faith I have, the belief in my God that he would always be there for me, gone, rattled. The family of these people could have been killed. Their own infants could have been ripped from their hands and killed. Their friends, everything they knew, destroyed. This is written by somebody who's experiencing that fresh grief. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. They'd been walking, traveling, being taken captive, realizing my life is over and I'm going to live every remaining day as a slave. And the people I love, the life I love is gone. And they're just utterly devastated. Like, we don't have a comparison to that in our modern world. Like, that's not even an option in our brains that this, something like this could happen. He says, when we remembered Zion, it's another name for Jerusalem, meaning we realized what they did to our city and the people there and the beautiful place that it was, and they just flattened it. He says, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, a musical instrument. And you think, why would they have musical instruments if they flattened everything? Why would these people be carrying instruments? It gets worse. He said, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors required mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, because these people are in mourning. But the Babylons, they just won. They just won the big game. They're pumped up. We just took Israel out, and we got all the good stuff that they have, and we're going to take it back to our place. So while these people are in the depths of mourning, they're saying, play us a happy tune. We're in a good mood. I'm sorry you're sad, but you play the happy songs, because that's what we're celebrating on the way the road back. That's like what's happening to these people. And so this psalm is being written by somebody in the depths of grief who are giving no chance to grieve, no chance to process, but are only having it rubbed in their faces. You see, how shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill and let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Meaning, God, if I forget that life that I had with you and the promises I had with you, I pray that I can't even sing these songs anymore. I pray that I can't play the instrument, and I pray that I can't even sing them. It says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. Edom was another nation that helped the Babylonians take out Jerusalem and Israel. It says, remember them in the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. They were taking joy in their lives being ruined and destroyed. And they said, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. This is somebody saying, God, is there going to be justice? God, please let there be justice. They just killed everyone I know. My family's gone. My city, my life is ripped to shreds. Please, God, do to them what they just did to us. Let them get a taste of their own medicine. And then we find the infamous verse, blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So this is not a verse saying that God gets joy out of killing babies. This is a poem written by somebody, again, in the depths of anguish, who want justice, who want to believe that this isn't all for nothing, who want to believe the world isn't this upside-down, imbalanced thing. You ever see somebody uh, commit a horrible crime and, and then they don't get the punishment you feel they deserve, and you're like, there's something in your heart that's like, that's not okay, that's not right. They're feeling that and their anguish. So it never says that God wants 
babies to be smashed. What this person is saying is that just happened to us. That was a common thing. When people came in to destroy these uh, smaller nations and, and beat them up, they would not only kill men, women, children, but if they were infants, just to get them out of the way, they would just rip them out of the arms of their mother, throw them to the ground to kill them, and then carry on. That was The ancient world was a rough and nasty place, and that was a common thing. And they're saying, this just happened to us, and I hope it happens to them. You ever had somebody do something wrong to you, and for that moment you wanted it to happen to them even though you knew it wasn't right? That's what is going on here. This isn't some, a verse saying God condones this, wants this. It's not even a verse, excuse me, a verse saying that we should want revenge. It's just an examination. It's a snapshot of somebody in grief. And I love that God allows things like this to be put in Scripture because it allows us to see the humanity that exists in all of us, and the fact that God cares about those moments of our lives. So, that's a hard thing to read, even when you understand what it's about, but, it, but when you take it, that verse that sounds really horrible, and sounds like God is really bad, and you put it into its context, you see where it fits in the story, it makes a lot more sense. But if somebody just cherry picks it, puts it out there, oh, the Bible's horrible. Oh, the Bible says so many horrible things. Oh, that's awful. What about, and what about slavery and stuff like that? We'll talk about that in, in a couple of weeks. Um, but again, this is a dangerous game we play when we cherry pick stuff because we bring it into, I'm going to make the Bible do what I want it to do rather than what God wants it to say. And so you can make the Bible look like it says a lot of things and especially a lot of the wrong things. So that's why I encourage you, to walk away today, if you remember nothing else, remember this, never read a Bible verse. Now, please don't say, please don't go home and be like, our preacher told us not to read the Bible. When I say don't remember anything else, or if you're only going to remember one thing, please, at least remember the right way. Okay, Maybe never read one Bible verse. Maybe you want to remember it that way. But don't go, I don't want to see anything on Facebook. Anthony said, don't read the Bible. That's not what I said. So never Never read a Bible verse. It is a dangerous game to play. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for our time together. We're grateful that we can talk about your word and how beautiful it can be. And I do pray that we would understand the dangers of just taking individual pieces and trying to fit it into our lives and, and make it say what we want it to say. But we would um, try to be a little more responsible with your word and at least um, understand these verses where they fit in the story. And if we come across something that seems really off-putting and difficult to understand, I pray that before we just gasp and, and think that your word is a joke or that you're horrible or, or something like that, we would at least take a step back and say, maybe I just don't understand what's going on in the story at this point where this verse is written. Or maybe I don't understand what part of the story this is talking about or what it's trying to explain. So help us, Father, to be people who responsibly handle your word. And help us to remember to never read one verse in isolation, but to always try to understand where it fits in the story, where it fits in the paragraph, where it fits in the chapter, where it fits in the book, or where it fits in the fullness of the story of Scripture. Because it is a story that you're, you've, you're working throughout history, even now. And so I do pray, Father, that, that we would understand the dangers of this, um, of cherry-picking verses, and we would also not be shocked when we see some of the nastier stuff that people are posting on, on the internet, trying to shock us with how, you know, oh, the Bible's horrible, but we would actually understand and see, no, they just cherry-picked a verse and are using it out of context, and we need to be careful that we don't do the same for our purposes as well. 
So thank you for Jesus and the story of Scripture that leads to him and builds to him and proclaims him. I just pray that we would always be a people who keep that story in focus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.